Hi, this is Gordon Russell, host of The Neutral Ground, the New Orleans Advocate's weekly podcast on the stories behind some of the stories that are making waves in South Louisiana this week. Thanks to our sponsors, Gardner Realtors, and thank you for joining us. Hi, thanks for listening to The Neutral Ground. Uh, Today we'll be talking with Della Hassell, who covers St. John the Baptist Parish, and she'll update us on that community's uh, fight with the Denka chloroplane plant in St. John. Uh, Next, uh, Sam Carlin, who covers business in Baton Rouge, will update us on a part of the Trump tax cut that uh, creates an incentive for investment in low-income communities. And last, uh, Matt Sledge, who covers criminal justice here in New Orleans, will tell us about an effort to reduce the jail population in the Orleans Parish Jail. Uh, first up is Della. Della, thanks for making some time today. Of course. Thanks for having me. So, Della, you had a really interesting story over the weekend about the uh, sort of legal fight in civil court uh, out in St. John between the community and the uh, Denka Performance Elastomer plant. And this is a plant that you've been writing about a lot that uh, emits a high level of this chemical that the EPA has recently deemed a likely carcinogen, right? That's right. It's a likely carcinogen. And uh, so just to let's start with the news and the story and then we can remind people a little more about this. But your story chronicled how many this sort of series of lawsuits brought by community members against the uh, against the owner of this plant. 3,800 lawsuits, is that right? 3,800 plaintiffs, that is. 3,800 plaintiffs uh, in seven identical lawsuits that were all filed in state court. And those seven lawsuits are among 10 filed so far okay. uh, in state and federal courts against Dinka just concerning chloroprene. And so just for a matter of perspective, this is in a parish that has about 45,000 people. So we're talking about one out of 10 parish residents is, is a plaintiff in one of these lawsuits. It's a huge number. It's a very concerted effort um, by residents and lawyers to... Uh, grab Dinka by its wallet. Gotcha. One of, one of the lawyers' direct quotes to me. So. But interestingly, at the same time, they're not seeking a ton of damages, and that's a, a, on purpose. Uh, that's by design as well. And, and the the reason there is not so much that they don't want money, but their their primary concern is to win the suit. And they, if they were to seek damages above fifty thousand dollars per client, this case would be moved to federal court. Is that right? Right. Well, the case could be moved to federal court for a number of reasons, but they're trying uh, their hardest to keep all seven lawsuits in state court. And one of the ways to do that is to limit the damages uh, per plaintiff. And that would sort of trigger an automatic removal, in other words. Right. It would, it would pass a threshold. Gotcha. So their real concern here is to get Denka, they say, is to get Denka to stop, to lower the um, stop polluting period, or at least lower the pollution below this uh, 0.2 microgram. Micrograms per, per cubic. <laughs> which is the threshold that, that the EPA has said is is the one they, that's the acceptable threshold. And it's one that Denka, despite a lot of improvements, is still not really that close to meeting, right? Basically, yes. So it's the it's what De- what it's what EPA says is the upper <coughs> limit of acceptability before residents are at increased risk of getting cancer from chloroprene over a lifetime. Okay. Exposure. 
And the chart we had accompanying this story, which showed six locations where this is monitored and showed sort of the highest readings at those locations, but also average readings. If I read the chart correctly, it suggested they were not uh, even on average coming that close to meeting those thresholds, I believe. No, they're still far above the that point to, um, it's not really a limit because there's no, no legal binding, there's no legal right. binding limit, but it's above that point to, yeah, that health <coughs> based threshold that the EPA says is. And just to be clear, Denka has never said that it would hit this number. In fact, they, they promised to reduce their emissions by 85%, but there was never a thought that reducing it, which they may have actually done is that, but that, but that was never going to make this 0.2 threshold. They completely disagree with the 0.2 threshold number. They say that um, not only is it not legally binding, but they've attacked the science behind it. They mm -hmm. say that the science is totally wrong, that uh, the chemical is not nearly as dangerous as the EPA says it is, mm -hmm. that they will never get to that 0.2 number. Um, and at one point, uh, Ch Chuck Brown, uh, the head of DEQ here in the state, actually said to get the number out of their minds. Okay. Uh, so he has also said that uh, point two is a questionable. So, so far we have the EPA setting this threshold, but it has no real legal teeth. And we have a state Department of Environmental Quality that has been I guess you could say the opposite of alarmist about this. They've been telling people they don't really think there's that much to worry about. And they've uh, said they don't really believe in this 0.2 standard. Greg Langley, the uh, spokesman for DEQ, has said there is no smoking gun in St. John Parish. And they've also pointed to the data collected by the Louisiana Tumor Registry, which studies, uh, is supposed to collect data on all cancers uh, recorded in the state and said that those data, which are not quite public for HIPAA reasons and other reasons, that those do not show elevated rates or are seriously elevated rates of cancer in the areas around the plant. Right. So they're saying that uh, not only are there no higher incidence of rates of cancer in St. John Parish than in other areas of Louisiana, but that um, there are certain cancers that chloroprene is supposed to cause uh -huh. are would be associated with would be associated with yeah. right um, and that it the area doesn't show huge spikes of those of kinds those, of cancers right. either now a difficulty with this also is that the there aren't that many people and cancer is relatively rare and then rare cancers by definition are very rare and so then you end up you know, you might only expect to find one case of a certain cancer among 20 or 50,000 people, and maybe you have two, and then that becomes very difficult. Right. It's hard to sort out uh, statistically and just otherwise, health-wise. I mean, it's hard to say if all the reported <coughs> incidents of cancer are making their way to the tumor registry. It's hard to say if there's... Um, it's just, it's a very hard thing to pin down. The science of it is, is hard. And, you know, the state health department has said as much. They've yeah. said it's, it's really difficult to sort out just how troublesome this chemical is 
um, but everybody agrees, what everybody has agreed, is that lowering emissions is a good idea. Right. <laughs> How much is a little bit in a matter of, that's partly what the dispute revolves around. Now, you and uh, reporter Nick Riemann took a, a ride around St. John Parish, or a couple of rides around there with some one of the plaintiffs in the lawsuit, and also a parish councilman who was also a plaintiff in the lawsuit, right? right. And and they, the, their view, the view on the ground there is that this is definitely affecting people's health. And they pointed at a number of houses where people had become sick with cancer and other things. And they're, they're, they don't seem to find this a difficult question at all. Is that fair? Oh, no. I mean, if you ask members of the community, uh, just like you said, there's no doubt in their minds that living next to this plant for decades has caused extreme health problems yeah. among the community. And we're talking about people, you know, in a relatively small area who are complaining of leukemia, brain cancer, odd skin rashes, a whole list of respiratory problems, um, <clears throat> It is a small area, and there does seem to be a lot of health issues yeah. in that small area. Yeah. Well, um, we will be continuing to follow this story with interest, as I know you will be. And uh, thank you for taking a few minutes to talk to me today, Della. Of course. Stay tuned. All right. Joining me today is Sam Carlin, uh, the Advocates business writer from Baton Rouge, who's been covering a lot of uh, the uh, state tax incentive programs, such as the industrial tax exemption program. Uh, this week, uh, Sam, first, thanks, Sam, for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Gordon. So uh, you had a really interesting story in Sunday's paper about these this new Opportunity Zone program, which is part of the uh, Trump tax cut bill of 2017. Can you uh, just give us kind of a, I guess, a 10,000-foot view of, of what these zones are and how this program is supposed to work? Yeah, so this was passed as part of the Trump administration's tax cut a couple years ago in 2017, and it was kind of quietly passed um, and then kind of quietly, um, you know, figured out at the state level with Governor Edwards nominating these zones. I mean, it was all announced and we, we covered it, but... There, there just hasn't been a whole lot of attention to it, but basically uh, it was pitched as kind of this program to um, help low-income areas, especially mm -hmm. ones that were left behind by the uh, ongoing economic recovery from the Great Recession. Right. And so basically what it does is gives people a break on their capital gains taxes if they uh, put those capital gains into developments or projects in these low-income areas. So if someone was going to book a big profit, for instance, and pay taxes on that, they could instead invest money in one of these designated zones and thus avoid that tax hit. That's exactly right. And it basically lets you defer that capital gains tax for several mm -hmm. years. And then ultimately, it'll give you a 15% discount up to a 15% discount. I and see. then the new profits you make on the new project you invest in, whether it's mm -hmm. a business or a real estate play or whatever, uh, that's completely free of capital gains okay. taxes. So it's a pretty nice benefit for these investors. Definitely. So, and I guess in, more in terms of the, the nuts and bolts of this, there the governor's office was involved in, in, in every state, the governor's office is involved in sort of 
deciding which, since not every zone is going to be part of this. And for the most part, they have to be areas that meet certain census requirements as far as poverty, right? But not all of them. That's right. So there's basically two ways you can get a zone or a census tract designated as an opportunity zone. One, and this is the most dominant way, is that if it's just a low-income census tract. Mm-hmm. And the second way is if it's contiguous to a low-income census tract in the median income isn't too, too high compared to the one it's next to. Um, So in Louisiana, we had a ton of these things. There were like almost 600 qualified census tracts that would have worked, but they're only allowed to do 25%. So they picked ultimately 150 and all, but I think five of them are in fact low income census tracts, but there are five, I think, that were those kind of non-low income contiguous tracts. And you spotlighted a few of those in the story, I think. Uh, can you run through what a couple, where a couple of those are? That's right. So I think the biggest one is the uh, census tract next to the uh, Morial Convention Center down there in New Orleans, mm-hmm. where the big hotel project is uh, planned to go. Right. Um, some guys, uh, an investment firm called Crescent Growth Capital down there in New Orleans, uh, recommended that that be included because they wanted to kind of piggyback on that activity to do their own projects and they thought it'd be a good area to do it in um a couple others that are notable i think uh, the ferret street corridor that one's actually Mm -hmm. is technically a low-income census tract but um it's kind of one of these more one that's seen a lot of investment a lot of investment it's kind of booming in some ways baton rouge as well we have downtown all of downtown more or less is an Uh opportunity zone which um you know, isn't really what people traditionally think about when they think of a low-income area. Um, they think more something in North Baton Rouge. That's right. And, I, and, I, and North Baton Rouge, I assume, has a number. Sure, of a ton well. of them yeah. are, but in North Baton Rouge, but but that's right. There are a few. But downtown's kind of the outlier. Exactly. Gotcha. And so the, I mean, obviously, the government's tried programs like this before, and they've come under fire sometimes for essentially subsidizing you know luxury condos and that sort of thing um well i mean the sorts of things that people with capital tend to like to invest their money in um and i i noticed that there's you know some skepticism this time around was reflected in your story what are there safeguards to to ensure that this is not just used as a way for for these people who have these large capital gains coming and thus are presumably fairly wealthy people, that this is just as a way to make them even more money as opposed to, I mean, I know this is intended on paper at least to help these communities, but do they have a way of sort of ensuring that that happens? Right. So the answer is no. The only safeguard, I think, uh, to ensure this money goes into low-income areas is the fact that these zones have to be low-income or those, as I mentioned, contiguous tracks. Um, as far as like what qualifies for this, what you can benefit from, it's pretty wide ranging. It excludes a few certain like sin projects, quote unquote, with, you know, like I think liquor stores might be one that doesn't qualify casinos. But right. Um, but other than that, I mean, it's pretty much wide open. And actually, one of the examples uh, I found <clears throat> was a developer up here, Mike Wampole, does a lot of these uh, downtown kind of class A office towers here in Baton Rouge. Um, And he sold off a luxury apartment complex in New Orleans and used the capital gains he made to funnel into another luxury apartment complex up here in Baton Rouge. And in doing so, he's going to benefit from this program because that new project is in an opportunity zone. Um, I see. 
And in fact, I, I mean, even a step further, it, a lot of people I talk to, even kind of the proponents of this, people who are excited about this, yeah. are a little bit worried that um, the way the program is structured, the more lucrative the tax incentive is, it depends on how much your property appreciates in value. So mm-hmm. in other words, the you know, the more money I make from the project I'm benefiting from the tax incentive from, you know, it's going to make my benefit bigger. So right. that's going to lead people, a lot of these critics say, to, you know, invest in things that are pretty safe bets. And a luxury apartment complex in downtown Baton Rouge uh, is, you know, kind of one of those projects right. that's going to make you a lot more money. In other words, there's no incentive within the program to invest in something that might have more of a quote-unquote community benefit. Sure. And in fact, one of the guys uh, with Crescent Growth Capital said, you know, they're looking at a couple things like affordable housing, but I think as this quote was, you know, you need to have some expectation of appreciation. So it's not going to be entirely focused on these community-type projects. Gotcha. Well, it's a really interesting story, and it'll be uh, interesting to watch this going forward, and in particular, maybe to see how much of the money gets invested in the uh, the those census tracts that are actually poor versus the ones that are the contiguous ones. Um, that might be something to watch for. Yeah, we'll be staying on top of it. All right. Well, uh, thanks a lot for uh, taking the time to talk with me today, Sam. Appreciate it. You bet. Thanks, Gordon. All right. Take care. See you. All right, well, joining me last is Matt Sledge, who covers criminal justice for The Advocate. Matt, thanks for uh, taking a few minutes to talk to me today. All right, thanks, Gordon. So uh, you had a story uh, in Monday's paper about a new grant uh, that the city has received to further reduce the inmate population at Orleans Parish Jail. Uh, How much is the grant for and what's it supposed to achieve? So the the city announced that it's getting $2 million that's on top of 1.5 1.5 million dollars that it's already received from the MacArthur Foundation, which is a national organization, and MacArthur has been looking to cities across the country uh, to say how can we reduce our jail population. And this initiative started under Mayor Mitch Landrieu, and Latoya Cottrell has really took the ball and run with it. And their goal now is to cut the jail population by another 20 percent which would push it down below 1,000 people in the jail, uh, which is really astonishing considering that as recently as 2010, we had more than 3,300 people uh, in the jail. So we've had like, in rough terms, we've had a two-thirds reduction in the number of people in the jail in that time. Yeah. And mostly we're talking here about uh, inmates who have not been convicted of a crime yet. These are generally pre-trial in you know people awaiting trial yeah i think it's 89 percent of inmates at the sheriff's office are pre-trial and then another 11 percent have been generally convicted of, of minor crimes and sentenced to a year or less in the in the parish lockup gotcha and so one public official has been fairly critical of this whole effort and even critical of this new effort leon canizero the district attorney what what, what did he say last week in his he made sort of a fiery speech to the Metropolitan Crime Commission. What was that about? Right. He was on friendly territory there. It's a lot of law enforcement leaders uh, gathering. And he really spoke out against this uh, push to further reduce the jail population. I think there's like an ideological debate going on here. People who are imposed uh, to high incarceration levels say 
this is a matter of beds. If we have fewer beds in the jail, uh, then you know we'll lock fewer people up. Leon Canizero says, no, we, we lock people up because they've committed crimes. So we, we shouldn't be tinkering uh, with all these different projects uh, to reduce the jail population size. We should lock up just as many people as we have to. And he said that in very strong terms on, mm-hmm. on Wednesday. And this, of course, comes during a much larger national debate over bail and whether it's a bail generally is a is a practice that we should, you know, keeping people, bail is essentially the forcing people to stay in, in jail when they haven't been committed uh, convicted of a crime yet is something that a lot of countries don't do, or especially in the case of a poor city like New Orleans, people uh, facing relatively minor criminal charges are often uh, in jail simply because they can't afford bail, uh, a relatively modest bail. Yeah, and, and the DA definitely threw some bombs at the kind of bail reform movement as well. There's been this push coming from city officials to release more inmates on their own recognizance or set low uh, bonds that their families can make just by posting cash instead of going to a bondsman. And, you know, I think for the district attorney, this is uh, yet another of what he called ill-conceived social experiments. And, uh, you know, it it was interesting. He used some fairly Nixonian terms. (laughs) He referred to the silent majority at one point in his speech. And he also spoke about, I think, kind of naive and academics and politicians pushing Hmm. social experiments on, on New Orleans. Any nattering nabobs of negativism get in there? <laughs> I believe that was Spiro Agnew. Oh, right. Uh, my bad. My no, bad. That, that was not dropped last week. Okay. No, uh, in Mr. Canizero, ironically, perhaps, is one of the beneficiaries of this new grant, correct? Yeah. Um, so that was an interesting thing while reporting, I found out while reporting this story. Um, he is one of the largest beneficiaries out of the $2 million over two years that the city got. Uh, the DA's office will be getting roughly $300,000, and that money is supposed to be spent on diversion counselors um, who can help kind of counsel people through this, this process, where at, at the end of the process, as long as they've uh, been on their best behavior, their criminal record is essentially wiped clean. Uh, the DA has always uh, said that he's in favor of diversion, um, so I think both from his perspective and from the city's perspective, uh, this is a, a good thing that can get people through the system uh, without criminal records. Uh, the city specifically hopes that he, uh, the, the DA will use diversion more often for people accused of felonies. Gotcha. Now, these comments made by the district attorney, of course, come at a time when we've just had the the year with the fewest homicides in almost half a century in New Orleans and, and a big drop in, in other gun violence as well. Um, does he, did he seem to see any uh, contradiction in the, and, and this is also comes as we've, as you just said, we've reduced the jail population by two thirds. So on its face, there doesn't seem to be a big connection between letting some of these people who are awaiting trial out of jail and violent crime, because we've sort of done both of those things in a pretty big way at the same time. Does he seem to see any contradiction in that in that view? The, the short answer is no. Um, in his speech, he held, he took partial credit for helping reduce the number of homicides uh, we had last year. 
But he also warned uh, that if we continue this jail reduc population reduction effort, we might see uh, crime levels start to go back up. I, I, I do think it's also important to note that um, you know this the jail population reduction has been an ongoing effort even before the city got these grants. Um, you know since uh, 2010 at least, um, and there are many categories over that time period from 2010 to 2019 uh, in which violent crime has gone up. Right. Of course, the uh, inmate reduction has continued over the last or two or three years, and violent crime has also gone down over that shorter time frame. Right. In other words, there hasn't been a direct relationship between the number of inmates in the jail and violent crime trends in either direction. We haven't seen it right. affect violent crime necessarily going up or going down consistently over. But but they don't in the sense that some people warned that if you do this, you're going to see a lot more violent crime. We haven't seen any real evidence of that. Yet. Not in the not in the short term. Of course, we're looking at very kind of blunt correlation right. numbers here. Right. This is not a uh, sophisticated analysis of, of numbers that we're looking at. But yeah, no, not in the short, short term. And let's talk briefly about politics, since this is all, of course, occurring against a political backdrop. And, and Leon Canazero's term as DA is up uh, next year in 2020. And he's already attracted one high-profile challenger, uh, city councilman Jason Williams, who has already declared that he's running. And these guys spar pretty regularly at these meetings. And Jason Williams, of course, is representing sort of the ideological opposite of Mr. Cazero, and he's a liberal uh, left-leaning defense attorney who's been very critical of some of the DA's practices. So how much of this is sort of a gearing up, do you think, for that? What's bound to be a pretty, well, we don't know yet whether Mr. Cazero is going to run for re-election, but how much of this is, is sort of a uh, prelude to that, what's going to be probably a pretty bruising election next year? Right, yeah, they're, they're both Democrats, but there's a huge contrast in between them. And I think Whoever runs next year, we're probably going to see one of the most ideological district attorney elections that New Orleans has ever seen. That hasn't been the case in <coughs> years past. And uh, Canizaro is definitely staking out kind of the right flank. Um, he still has yet to announce whether he will run for re-election again next year. This speech last week had a lot of observers uh, thinking that he maybe will run. Um, of course, it, it could also mean that He's decided on his way out the door that he's going to take a kind of no prisoners attitude and, and you know, try to create this space for this more old school, uh, tough on crime uh, position to continue in New Orleans. Um, he's, he's really the sole kind of citywide elected official right now who's staking out that position. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's possible that if he doesn't run again, Next year, he tries find, to find somebody else to run in his place as kind of his anointed successor. Someone to take up the mantle of law and order and so forth. Right. Although yeah. I'll also say that there's no obvious candidate, at least in my mind, um, to do that. But, yeah. you know, it, there's a lot of time between now and next year. Right. All right. Well, um, we'll be watching all these developments. Uh, thanks for taking a few minutes to talk to me, Matt. Thank you, Gordon. All right. The Neutral Ground is brought to you by Gardner Realtors, with music provided by David Bodie. We welcome your feedback and your ideas for future shows. 
Email me at grussell, with two S's and two L's, at theadvocate.com, or call me at 504-636-7437. Hope to see you next week.